We're coming now to the close of this uh, this teaching series through the letter that the Apostle John wrote to the churches that were in uh, what's what's now Turkey at that time Asia Minor, a Roman uh, a Roman air- controlled area. We've talked about how John writes his letters in a way that's a little bit unfamiliar to many of us. We tend to uh, many of us uh, tend to think very linearly. One thought to the next, more like the Apostle Paul writes oftentimes than uh, the Apostle John wrote. John tends to revisit ideas over and over, looking at them from different angles and in more depth and new ideas about them. But now as he's drawn to the close of the letter, it's kind of like the drill that's been going in has come to a, a, a pretty precise point he's drawing an application from all of the great truths that he's written about he wants us to know certain things he wants us to let that knowledge be moved into action to apply that knowledge we'll pick it up here in verse 13 and read Uh, through verse 17 and also look a little bit at verse 18. Next week will be the last sermon in this and looking at that ending where he talks about keeping yourselves from idols. Here we are this week. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. Do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This is God's Word written for our benefit and for His church universal in all times. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You that You have spoken. And that what was previously hidden from us has been revealed. It was revealed by your prophets of old, and it was revealed even more clearly in the coming of Jesus Christ. Word, Logos, made flesh. May we see Jesus today, and may we believe in him, and may it transform who we are inside and out. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle John was into purpose statements before purpose statements were an in thing. Today you look around and you can see anybody's resume. If you've made a resume, you see that objectives have become purpose statements. If you look at companies, large and small, you see that mission statements have become purpose statements. You may say it's all semantic difference, but there is some difference between these objectives and uh, purposes or missions and purposes. And I think the most clear difference is that purpose 
implies meaning. Purpose implies meaning. Objectives or missions oftentimes communicate action, desire. But purpose goes a step further to imply meaning. Life is good, that company that makes the t-shirts, you know, and the mugs and probably anything you want to say life is good on them, has a simple mission statement that says spreading the power of optimism. One of the ones that I thought was particularly interesting by an eyeglass company called Warby Parker. I'm not hip enough to know who Warby Parker is. Maybe some of you are. But they say that they were founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty objective to offer designer eyewear at a revolutionary price while leading the way for socially conscious businesses. It's grand. It's full. It makes you think buying or selling this cup of coffee isn't just going to satisfy my need today or provide a service. It's going to be a part of changing, changing the world. Changing the world. Apostle John, not he just once, but twice in his writings, provides a mission statement. Back in his gospel, he wrote, chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. What could be more world-changing than Jesus bringing life to all who would believe in Him? John says, look, there are all kinds of things that Jesus did. Why did I pick these things to write about? So that you would believe in Christ who came. He says the same thing here in his, in his epistle, his letter. He says, I write these, these, these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There are a lot of things we don't know. There are even things we don't know we don't know. <coughs> but John wants us to understand that what God has revealed in His Word, we can hear and believe and know. Not only has God spoken, but that Word has become flesh. A human being who claimed to be God Himself. Who died the death that all human beings die. And yet, unlike any human being before him, was raised to eternal life in that body. And John wants us to look on Jesus and see him and believe. Believe that Jesus has come in the flesh and that we have life. But it's interesting that John isn't just concerned that we see and believe and end there. Now this is an important point, and one of the points that we need to come out of John with is this first point. Is as individuals, do we believe that Jesus is the Christ? In fact, two questions 
have helped this point be made evident uh, over the last 50 years or so. It started with a, a movement of evangelism that was called Evangelism Explosion. This began in Florida and, and uh, perhaps is one of the most widely used evangelism tools ever. In the 1960s by a pastor named uh, D. James Kennedy. He had these two diagnostic questions that he asked people. He said, first, he would go one-to-one. Many people would take these door-to-door. When he didn't have somebody who wanted to talk, was willing to talk, he'd ask him a question. Have you reached the point in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven? Have you reached the point in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven? It's the same question that John is asking here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may have eternal life. And some would answer yes, and some would answer no, and some would answer I don't know. The second question probed further, and oftentimes the people who answered yes, or I don't know, their beliefs were made more evident when the second question came up. If you were to die tonight, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, how would you answer? And this being the 1960s, many people at this point who answered yes, or I don't know, would answer, well, I've been a pretty good person. And in that was revealed whether a person knew whether they were saved or not. How much confidence they had. In fact, the ones who said, I don't know, or I'm pretty sure, rarely was there somebody who would answer, I'm absolutely sure, based on those works, would wrestle with the question, how much is enough? Now, it's interesting that those questions that were so effective in the 1960s are less effective now for a few reasons. For one thing, in the 1960s, many people were coming from a moralistic background. Either Catholic or Protestant, many people came with this notion that God set our works in balances, good on one side, bad on the other, and if your good works outweighed your bad, you were in. And so the question was uncovering this lie that somehow those good works are what merit God's favor for us in life. All through 1 John, what we read earlier from Romans, all the Bible points to this one fact that God's love is conditioned only on His grace. His forgiveness offered to us, not based on anything we have done, but based on what Jesus has done. It's interesting, if you go around and ask these same questions today, many people know the answer to number two. Regardless of what their lifestyle is, regardless of what they do, it's, it's more like a question, it's more like your, your California driver's license test. You know the one that the answer is all over the internet, so you already know what's going to be on the test? I, I, I looked on the internet. I don't know, is that against the law? You thought I cheated on one test when I was in middle school. It was the only time I was ever suspended from school, but I was caught. I wasn't caught. My friends turned me in who got caught. And for the first two days of high school, I was suspended. 
the, te- the answer is all there all the time. In fact, you go to people oftentimes now and you go to somebody who you know does not have any sense of what Christian love is or what God's teaching is, and they'll tell you the answer. Well, what's the answer? Jesus. The Apostle John, throughout this whole letter, has been making an important point that Jesus is the only foundation for our salvation. But to say you believe in Jesus is always evidenced by your commitment to love God and love one another. Little children love one another. It was said that John continued to say even to his old age, he would come in carried in because he couldn't walk anymore. And he would say, little children, love one another. And that was it. Because in loving one another, you know that you've truly been loved by God. In loving one another, you've been freed. You've been freed from the slavery of fearing that you aren't loved enough. John says, you need to know, though, that loving one another is defined in the Bible. Jesus defined it. How do you summarize all of God's commandments? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. How do we love one another? The Apostle John says in this letter, to love one another is to follow God's commands. If you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you in to heaven? The answer is certainly Jesus. But God then says, did you love one another? Because if you've truly known my love, you would love one another. It's a tough question. How do we love one another? Yes, following God's commands. But what about when we fail? Verse 18 goes on. We'll tackle this more next week. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Is our obedience to God the measure of our faith? We talked about yesterday how there are many measures to our faith. You can look at the fruit of Spirit in your life. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I always miss one. You can probably tell me which one I missed. Sometimes we try to just do more, make the fruit happen. These are always measurements of our faith, but they're never the means by which our faithfulness grows. We can't manufacture this fruit of the Spirit. The only way we can grow in this love is by the means of growth that God has given us. In other words, belief can lead to good works. Good works never lead us back to belief. How do we believe? How do we shape our mind into that belief? We shape it by studying God's Word and hearing His promises. We shape it by coming to God and receiving the sacraments that He's given us, tangible means by which we understand God's grace. And we shape it by our prayers. For in prayer, God has given us access to His holy throne. We can come into His presence and He says, come in. 
He doesn't shut the door and say, I'm busy. He says, come in and pray to me. And that's where John leads us in this letter, is that if you know what you have in Christ, that you have eternal life, it gives you confidence to come to God in prayer. It is a boldness that nothing else can give us in life. And that confidence that we have is one that we so often neglect. It's probably the toughest one of all of those ordinary means of grace. It gets squeezed out. I don't have time. Got to get to work. Don't have time. Dinner has to be made. I don't have time. Kids need to go to bed. I don't have time. I'm tired. It's time for bed. But John, drilling into this point, he leads us to this point of prayer. Knowing what we know leads us to pray. Now there's three really tough questions that come up in this. We're just going to address each of them fairly briefly. The really tough questions that come up here is, I do pray, but it seems like he just said, whatever we ask for, we get, and I don't always get what I ask for. Why don't we get what we ask for? First question, why don't we get what we ask for? Second question comes up here. He said that some sins lead to death and others don't. What is the sin that leads to death? that we're not supposed to pray for. The third question that we're going to look more at next week when we look at this, what, what if I keep sinning? Is that what's getting in the way of my prayers, my sins? So let's just look at each of these questions because I think that these are important questions that you probably have asked. Why don't we get everything we ask for? Should we? Is the promise here that we get what we ask for? Well, James... Apostle James writes a similar letter, similar in feel to what John wrote. Wrote this, my brothers, uh, excuse me, wrong one, James 4.3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly, James says, to spend it on your passions. Are we asking for our own selfishness? Are we asking for what we want? Well, God says, and through John, He says, look, whatever you ask according to His will, He hears us and He gives us. The first thing we need to understand here is that God's will is better than ours. And that when we ask, we, gotta know, we, we understand that our, our prayers are filtered, if you will. Filtered by Jesus who intercedes on our behalf, who is called our high priest, who goes to God in prayer, And he he edits our prayers. He edits our prayers because he knows what is best for us. And so when we go to God and we pray in Jesus' name, one of the things we're saying in shorthand is we're asking Jesus to perfect our prayers because he knows better than what we know. He knows more fully what we need and how God is accomplishing his purposes. Some of the time we can't see what's happening. I think that's that's a very simple answer here, but it shouldn't remove our interest to pray. It shouldn't lessen our desire to pray. Because what John is saying here and what others say in Scripture is that when we pray, God uses those prayers to accomplish His purposes. Even when we pray wrongly, He uses that time in prayer to reshape us into His will. So part of our 
task in praying is actually to go and to learn God's will, to study it, to read the scriptures so that we understand it so that we can pray more and more according to his will. But Jesus, Jesus says, you know, when the children come to him, don't hold them off. Let the children come. In order in part to communicate to us that when we pray even a childlike prayer, God delights in us coming to him and he hears our prayer. And he understands our needs even before we ask them. And he says, come back again tomorrow. I've loved my time with you. So part of it is an understanding of what God's will is. And some of the time it's not our will. Some of the time we ask selfishly, but not always. In fact, the second question here helps us to understand the first question. The second question is, what is this sin that leads to death? And this is a question that many have wrestled with through the ages. In the Roman Catholic Church, this is a key passage for distinguishing some sins as mortal sins, deathly sins, deadly sins, and some sins as lesser sins, venial sins, less important sins. Mortal sins lead to death. Venial sins, not so much. Other people in other traditions have also said certain sins rise to a level that they are unpardonable. Perhaps murder, perhaps adultery, perhaps genocide and evil dictators who kill millions of people. Surely those are sins that lead to death. But there's a helpful word here that often gets overlooked. Sometimes when we read this passage, we get so caught up on the question of, am I committing the sin that leads to death, that we miss the bigger picture of the passage? Right? John has these, these stinging statements. He says, look, if you're not living according to love, maybe you don't know God. And this turns our attention inward when John, at this point, is wanting us to turn our attention outward. And he says in verse 16, did you catch this? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is the word brother there, right? The brother. If anyone looks around in the congregation here and sees his brother committing a sin, he should ask, pray for them. The prayer that he's talking about first and foremost is not a prayer for our own needs as much as it is a prayer for others. It's a call at this point, to pray for one another, to be outward facing. But there's a second word that really helps us to understand this, and that is, and God will give him life. Now you remember what John's been dealing with throughout this letter. It's some people who had been in the congregation, who had been telling others in the congregation that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. That perhaps God entered into Jesus when he was baptized by the Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't fully God. Jesus didn't really die for your sins. Whatever lies they were telling, they were telling lies about Jesus. But they were a part of the congregation. You remember this part? They were, they were in. They were considered brothers, sisters. And so now... 
John is saying, look, pray for others who are sinning against you. Pray for others who are sinning against you. Pray specifically for those who do not have the life we've been talking about throughout. What's the way that you get the life all through 1 John? Whether you've been here every Sunday or not, you know what is the only way that life comes? Belief that Jesus is the one who brings life. It's the only way. All the works are evidence of that, but the only way that life comes is to believe that Jesus was the salvation that God had promised. That his death paid the price for your sin. Now, who were the ones in the congregation who weren't believing that? Well, you've got those people who were telling the lies that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. But you've also got a group of people who are wrestling with this truth, who are wrestling with this statement, who don't believe yet, but don't teach the lie. In other words, you have to distinguish these two groups. Neither of them have yet come and recognized eternal life. But one of those groups still has the potential to believe. And the other of those groups has denied that Jesus came in the flesh and died for the sins of the world. And John's saying, don't pray for the people who aren't going to believe let me let me take a step back that's not what he said he said don't he didn't say don't pray for the people he said don't pray for forgiveness for the one sin that can't be forgiven don't pray that god would forgive people their sins apart from the way that god forgives sins are you tracking with me here don't Don't pray that God will make himself a liar by saying the only way for sins to be forgiven is through Jesus, but forgive those people who are denying that anyway. It it makes God inconsistent. There are those in the congregation who continue to sin and who even continue to deny Jesus. Pray for those people that God will forgive those sins and a number of other sins. But don't pray that God will forgive a sin that he can't forgive. At the classic question, can God create a rock so big that he can't move it? Well, the answer to that question is that God can do all of his holy will. God can do all of his holy will. God can't do something apart from his holy will. God cannot sin. God cannot save apart from the way that he established for salvation. And so it's very clear. If you look at the whole of this letter, that the only sin that leads ultimately to death is to deny the way that God has established for salvation. John says, don't pray that God would do that. But for everybody else in here, even those people who have taught falsely, pray for them that God would forgive them. Pray that God would move them out of a state of death and into the state of life. Go to God and beg Him. Use everything in your power to do it fast on their behalf. Cry out to God on their behalf. If you see your brother sinning, what's the first thing we like to do? We, go, we like to go point it out, right? 
No, don't go point it out. Go to God and pray on their behalf because God hears your prayers. And you don't know if that person is destined for salvation or not. Only God knows that. And he will answer those prayers as Jesus intercedes for you and joins in those prayers. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples, it's interesting. John or Matthew records Jesus teaching his disciples the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount fairly early in his in his public ministry. Luke has another case later in the public ministry where Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he'd finished, one of his disciples came up to him, Lord, will you teach us to pray? As John taught his disciples, this is the apostle, the uh, John the Baptist here. He said to them, an abbreviated version, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Goes on to tell a story about a man who was asleep in his house. A friend came, and he knocked on his door late at night. He said, go away, I don't have any bread for you. His friend said, I'm hungry, will you give me some bread? He said, go away, I don't have any bread. But his friend kept knocking. Excuse me, I, I mistold the story here. Got ahead of myself. The friend said, hey, will you give me some bread? He said, I don't have any, but I know who does. He goes to another friend. He goes to another friend who he knows he has bread. Has bread. And he knocks, and his other friend who has the bread says, Go away, I'm tired, it's late. He keeps knocking. Go away, I'm tired, lady. He keeps knocking persistently. Persistently, it says, because of his persistence, the man opened the door, gave him the bread that he then took back and gave to his friend. It's an interesting lesson there and in Matthew 6 where the other version of the Lord's Prayer is found. There in Matthew 6, the highlight of the prayer that's emphasized right after the prayer is on that phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As if to emphasize that one of the key parts that we play in God's work of redemption is our forgiving others and then going to God and asking God to forgive them as well. Yes, give us our daily bread as part of the prayer. What did Jesus emphasize in that prayer? It's going to God on behalf of others and being persistent and keeping knocking on that door because you know God is the only one who has what they need. Yesterday in our class, I was regretting afterward that I didn't spend more time talking about evangelism and our outreach efforts as a church. Maybe I should have emphasized that more. But the lesson today that comes is where does evangelism begin? Why do so many of us fall short? It's not that we are gifted evangelists. So we don't go and knock persistently on our father's door, our friend's door, who we know has the bread other people need point out the sins that are in their lives and we don't go and ask the one who has the power to forgive their sins and change those sins in their lives 
If anything, I want our church to be a place where these prayers are going up to God all the time, where he's sick of us knocking on the door. You feel like God's sick of you knocking on the door. If you don't, you haven't prayed enough yet. Jesus has given you this access. He's forgiven all of your sins. We don't have to be in fear or in shame. We don't have to be afraid to come to worship because we didn't measure up in the week. We don't have to be afraid to go to God in prayer because we didn't do the right things in the week. In fact, the thing that blocks our prayers oftentimes are the very temptations that Satan leads us into. And he leads us into those temptations oftentimes at the places we're most poised to pray for others and to do the things God wants us to do. When you hear Satan telling you that lie, believe the truth that God has said that he loves you because of what he's done and go to him and beg on behalf of your friends, your family, your children, your spouse. I mean, if you see me sinning, go to him. In fact, go to him, assuming that I've sinned in some way because I have, just as all of us have ask God to forgive us our sins and ask God to lead those who don't believe to a place of belief he says he will says he will let's pray Our friend, we come to you in the middle of the night asking you on behalf of those who don't believe. I pray for those who are here, even in this room, who are wrestling with this question of did Jesus really do all of this that he says, John says he did, that all the Bible says he did. That you would replace our unbelief by a spirit of belief. That you would not leave us in places of sin and of doubt but would move us to places of belief and of action, of active prayer on behalf of others. And that we would trust that you are powerful, powerful enough to change even the hardest of hearts, as well as those who are close right now. Help us believe, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.